could be the best thing we've ever done as a church right, right there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Every once in a while we do something. Sort of, right? All right, that's not going to let me push this down though, bro. How does this get off? There we go. It does, yep. How about that? Okay, good enough. <laughs> all right, well, good morning again, everybody. Good to see you all and uh, welcome Again, to the church, and it's, uh, we're glad you're here if you're a visitor, especially uh, welcome to our church. And we're in a series right now in the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, uh, pretty much in the middle of your Bible, though I guess more in the like two-thirds portion of your Bible. If you want to open to that, that'd be great if you have one or pick a pew Bible up. Or A lot of this will be on screen today too, uh, but we do value just opening our Bibles sometimes. We can read what's around these things as the sermon's going on, and if you like to do that, it can actually be pretty helpful. And we try to preach that way, of course, as well, to give context to what we're looking at, but sometimes you don't head in everything. So we are in a sub-series right now on the greater uh, series in the book of Matthew called Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. So the Gospel of the Kingdom is a, a common phrase in Matthew. It's a little bit cryptic. It just means gospel means good news. And the kingdom of God means uh, the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is arriving through Christ. It was Entering history in many and various ways before this in the Old Testament, but it doesn't really get here until Christ is born. And even then, it doesn't really get here until he dies on the cross for our sins and defeats death and raises again on the third day and walks out of that tomb. It's really there that God's kingdom is, is fully established. But here in the earlier parts, we're not there yet, in the earlier parts of the gospel, we're, we're hearing echoes of that story, basically echoing backwards into the story. So it does that into the Old Testament, but here in the early parts of the story, we're anticipating the cross. We're anticipating this kingdom of God coming into the world, and we're seeing it in two ways, declaring and demonstrating. So a lot of times, Jesus will just talk about this. He'll declare truths about the, king, the gospel of the kingdom and talk about it pretty explicitly. He'll actually talk about the cross very explicitly before he goes to the cross, so he gets pretty clear about it. But he'll also talk a lot about it or demonstrate a lot about it through his physical actions, like miracles and healings and exorcisms and other things like that. So demonstrations of these truths in physical ways. The Bible's full of that kind of stuff. Declarations and demonstrations. We'll see it later in the New Testament as well after the cross. We've uh, done that a lot here as a church too. So, but it's really helpful sometimes just to have that in your mind when you read the Bible and, and just ask, is this a, a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ or a flat-out declaration? Or sometimes both, right in a passage or, or paragraph or even a verse. So uh, that's where we are. This is really good. It's not a mini-series. It's more of a sub-series because it's going to take us a while to get through this sub-series, basically through chapter 25 into 26, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. So we'll be in this sub-series, this section of Matthew uh, for some time, probably up, upwards of a year. Then we'll finish up with the passion, with the suffering of Christ, the cross, and the account of his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances um, as well. So uh, last week, uh, to catch up to speed a little bit, last week Jesus was preparing to get into a boat to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but was stopped by some people. He just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He was stopped by a couple of people to uh, talk about uh, following him, discipleship, and the cost of that. And so we talked about that last week. Today we're going to actually read about the crossing. So today he does, in fact, get into the boat with his uh, core of his disciples, uh, the twelve, and he crosses the lake. And we're going to read about how they crossed, exactly, some events that happened in the sea, and then what Jesus did on the other side. This is a great story, by the way, too. A lot of you guys like this. This is one, probably one of my favorite places to go, actually, in all the Gospels. My kids ask me sometimes, what's your favorite Bible story? And I say, 
they're, I don't have a favorite. I like them all. They're all pretty good. But then they keep pressing, and I say this one to give them something. But I, but I do like this one a lot. I don't know why. It's just a, a lot about Christ's power and some cool biblical theological themes, which we'll hit on today, uh, part, partly today uh, here as well. So Matthew 8, 23 to 24, Jesus cal- or 34, Jesus calms the storm. Let me read it in its entirety. And um, you'll see why today as well we're doing these two sections together. They're really, in one way, two separate sections that could be preached on separately, but uh, I think that in all the Gospels, these two things are put together. In all the Gospel accounts that have this, these stories, uh, Jesus is always doing these things, saying these things, calming these things on the boat with the disciples, and then he crosses to Gentile country, non-Jewish country, uh, to do something over there. They're always lumped together, and I think that's for a reason, so that's why I want to do this today is take them together. So you'll see more about that later. Matthew 8, 23 to 34. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So interesting way it ends, right? He begged him to leave the region. We'll talk about that, uh, how that ends here uh, shortly, but a lot going on. What I want to do, though, is... Uh, back up and really take this passage as a whole from two different perspectives today. I talk about this a lot. I think it's a helpful thing if you're new to the Bible to understand passages, maybe especially narrative uh, in this manner, and that is understanding a passage in its tree form and its forest form. So I really want to do that explicitly today. We basically do that every week, but I want to do that today uh, just very clearly. I want to look at the passage in its tree form. So just what do we learn about Jesus right from the, pa- the trees of the passage at face value here and some of the things that follow it. Uh, we'll look at the cross here, too, in this section. But, but also, uh, back up, we'll do this secondly, look at the forest. So what does the whole Bible have to say here? We actually see lots of sea-stilling events happen in the Scriptures. We're not going to look at all of them today, but one in particular that's significant here that helps us get, get at this idea that the Bible is a unity. It is not to be read. Passages like this are not just simply not to be read in isolation. We do not understand them. We will never understand them the way God intends if we read them in isolation. We never will. And so we have to step back and get the big picture here, the forest. What is God doing thematically here that ties into the past and also the future? And so, that's, again, we've been doing this a lot almost every week, but really explicitly today, it's a great example. So I hope that this is a, a teaching time and a preaching time today, that we'll just get a little bit better at reading our Bibles today, a little bit more equipped maybe to read passages like this, uh, using this as an example, but, but also just hear the Word of God and, and adore it. There's really nothing to do here in response to today except just adore Christ. And so if you got that in mind, you're getting a lot. Just look at the amazingness of Christ, the power of Jesus, his love for you, and just stand in adoration of that and respond. 
Uh, there's really, and I'll mention this at the end too, but we can really cheapen passages like this if we start to add to them and say, this is great, we've got to go home and really try hard to do this because of it. We cheapen it. We cheapen the cross. We cheapen Jesus when we add things and lump things onto the cross. When the cross just says, there's nothing you can do to earn this. There's nothing. God does absolutely everything for us in the cross. There's nothing we can do. So, um, so we'll come back to that here shortly uh, and, and tie this together. But again, the tree and the forest approaches, uh, both are helpful. Uh, but again, if we just do the tree and not the forest, we can be missing a lot. So, okay, let's start. First is the tree. So observations right from the immediate context here uh, in Matthew 8. It's quite a story, right? A couple of things going on here. There's the boat. There's the, the time over in, in the Gadarenes, the country of the Gadarenes, Gentile country, and the exorcisms there. Uh, but quite a story as a whole. Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea. Great storm arises to the point that the boat was being swamped by waves. So they're probably thinking, we're going down. This is it. And Jesus is not just not concerned. He's asleep on the boat, like actually sleeping through this. It's fascinating. So he's sleeping likely because, we don't know exactly why, but, you know, he's God and man together. So as God, why should he be concerned, right? But he has power over nature as well. We'll see that in a second. Uh, But also as a man, he's probably tired. Uh, Jesus was tired. Jesus suffered. Uh, Jesus had headaches. I mean, Jesus was attacked and persecuted. And so we know he was just like us as well. So he's probably tired. Or at least as a man, he knows that his time had not yet come, as the gospel writer John indicates, different gospel, but his time had not yet come for him to die. And so probably as a man, too, is trusting in God the Father, he just has that deep-seated contentment and knowledge that this isn't it. Things are really bad here, but I know my time has not come yet to die to atone for the sins of the world. This is not the circumstances by which it's going to happen, and this is just not yet the time. And so he's sleeping, knowing that I'm going to be, we're going to be okay here. But nevertheless, he slept. So the disciples woke him, asking him to save them, which is significant. And it's interesting that he first questions their fear and their level of faith, right? Super significant again. And then stills the sea with a word. Other gospels say they they don't record the word here. Matthew doesn't in Matthew. But other gospels say be still or stop. Uh, He just rebukes it with this and actually says the sea obeyed, which I love that. Not just that it stopped, but it it had to listen to him. Really cool. Then after that, he goes into Gentile country, again, other side of the sea, and delivers two demonized men, again, just with a word. He says, go, and they go. So big Matthew theme, Mythian theme here, is the power of Christ's words. We've already seen it a lot in the Gospels, just with simple words, things that aren't are, and things that could never be reversed are. He has the amazing authority and power that's absolutely unprecedented. It's part of what we're just supposed to get here at face value. So that's the first thing I've got. Uh, First tree observation is Jesus has power over the natural realm and the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. So you get two cool juxtaposed realms here, right? The physical realm, the storm, the winds, the sea, and the, the spiritual realm, fallen angels, the demonic realm. In both cases, Jesus has supreme authority. At no point in the story to get this idea that this might not go well for Jesus. He's asleep, right? Like total control the whole time. At no point you get this idea, yeah, this, boy, this, is, could, this could be the end. Yeah, this understanding that Jesus is in complete, sovereign, providential control, has the power of God within him because he is the Son of God, and it just works out that way. With the word, uh, he commands. So you see that again in verse 26, the top paragraph. He rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm immediately. And then in verse 31 and 32, the demons begged him, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them again, with a word, with a word, go. 
So again, if you guys stretch back a couple of weeks, some of you guys haven't been here for this, but just a couple of weeks ago, we saw this pattern take place too when he healed people. After the Sermon on the Mount, when he came down from the mountain, just with a word, if you remember that, he touches people, the leper, and they're healed instantly. But in one case, there's a paralyzed man, not even there. His, uh, his master comes and, and implores Jesus, my, my servant's suffering greatly. He's paralyzed. He's suffering intensely. Uh, just say the word, he says. I'm not, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So if you just say the word, I know he'll be healed. It's an incredible story. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But even there, if you stretch back to that, he heals a paralytic with the word. And here he's doing that as well. He heals he calms seas, and he delivers the demonized. You could say he rebukes all three as well, right? I mean, here in this passage today, he rebukes as if it's an enemy, because it kind of is. It's a type of enemy in the situation. Rebukes the wind and the seas. You could say he rebukes the paralysis in chat, earlier in chapter 8 as well. And, and clearly here, though the word's not given over to it, he's rebuking the demons as well, right? Because they're all types of enemies. They're adversaries, that the kingdom of God, Jesus being the king of that kingdom, is coming to address and face and slay. He's beginning to do that here, and people are getting a glimpse for what the kingdom of God is all about. It's right here. What's also important to see, the story does not end here as well. It keeps going. So we'll tie some of that in here as we go. But, but again, at least one of the trees here is his power. And I think this is so crucial as well. A lot, of this, a lot of times this is in the white space of passages like this, but we're not just seeing what Jesus does, we're seeing what people can't do and just don't do in the stories, right? It doesn't flat out say that sometimes, but it's just clear he has the ability to do what absolutely no one else can. It's a major theme here in chapter 8 and in surrounding context of Matthew. His ability is in focus to heal, calm, and pull evil and its influence out of someone. I mean, literally, it's what he's doing, right? He's taking evil and its influence, he's plucking it out of the soul and body of these two men, and, and they walk away, walk away changed. So incredible power. To the point where the disciples say, what sort of man is this? Right? Which implies they kind of knew that he was the Messiah, he was the promised one, he was the anointed one that the Old Testament foresaw and predicted. He's here to make some things right. But we also know from the disciples right here, and from what happens at the cross especially, no one's expecting that, they don't really understand at, at the same time. So they just say something. They say things like this. What sort of man in this? Even the seas and, and the winds obey him. So incredible story uh, we have here in, in Matthew 8. Even from last Friday, a lot of you guys, I thought it was really cool that God providentially arranged that we would preach this today after such a, a storm hits uh, on, on Friday. A lot of you guys, I think, are from around here, right? From the Longfellow, St. Paul area. You guys probably saw it as you drove in, or you're aware of this, whatever, unless you're from Iowa or something, but probably, probably uh, you're from here. So yeah, sorry. The wilderness, I'll say, no. But uh, no, that's, uh, but anyway, having that as the backdrop to, to uh, the story, it just really enli enlivens it, right? I mean, I think Longfellow, I heard Longfellow was the bullseye of the whole storm, something like that, which we won, you know, it's good. But no, it's, you don't want to win that one, but, it's, but we did. But anyways, you know, trees down everywhere. My wife and I were at the, uh, the wine bar here close, uh, close by, the Riverview area, and we were on a date, actually, and our, so it was kind of a dramatic thing. Tried to run home to our kids, but like, I'm not going to run in that. But it was a pretty nuts thing, but our kids were fine. But it was crazy. I mean, trees coming down like dominoes. And, but it's, it's, it's a storm like that that I think is probably what's happening in Matthew 8, and probably to a higher level because the disciples are fearing for their lives more than any of us did probably in the room. People could have died easily in this storm if it's just a tree of any size, 
uh, really, from around here anyway, uh, fell on them. But uh, the storm was probably uh, uh, like that. So this is what I think should be in our mind. And if you in any degree or any way saw the storm, this is what I've been thinking about this past week, is a storm like that is what Jesus basically walked into, or in this case, stands up, wakes up on a boat, and raises his hand to the storm and stops it, you know, and not just, not just kind of allows the heaviest bands of rain to kind of pass over or something like that. It stops, you know, and he says, he speaks to it, be still, as if it were a personified thing, rebukes it, basically saying, I'm the creator, you're the created thing, obey, and it does. Isn't that incredible? I mean, amazing power, but also amazing love here, because he's doing this with people he loves behind them. So we should picture a storm like Friday, Jesus walking out of our homes and for our benefit, rebuking it and saying, trees stay standing, storm stop, winds calm, rains abate, stop. And they do because this is not just a story, it really happened. He's able to take a storm like that happened on Friday and end it. Isn't that incredible? A man lived who could do that. And you just got to just, again, this is a tree, right? At face, you just got to take it for what it is and say, he lived. He walked the road. He walked the, the areas of the, the Galilean region. He crossed the sea. He rolled the waves. And he just experienced these things. And he could control them. If you read the biblical storyline, you've got it, and you have this in mind, no one does that but God, right? No one in the Bible does it unless God is empowering some special prophet to do that just for a time here and there. No one does that. And so especially on this level, Basically, what we're seeing is God is here uh, to, to do these things. So, so going back to our subtitle for the series, what this is then is a demonstration of the gospel of Christ. This is a demonstration of what he does for us spiritually. Jesus has done this for all of us. He's walked out of our homes that are threatened by the storm. He's rebuked them, and they've instantly uh, been stilled. And it's the means by which he does it. So we don't just see his power here, but like I said before, we see the means by which he accomplishes these things and just how matter-of-factly people are not involved in them. In all these stories, going back to the part of chapter 8, the paralytic did not deliver himself or heal himself. The disciples did not calm the sea here, right? We just got to say that and understand how obvious this is and how important this is. Jesus does 100% of this. The disciples do absolutely nothing except wake him up. And implore him to do it. And the demonized did not deliver themselves either, right? Jesus does absolutely everything. In, in the same way, he does this for us. Jesus does it all. He, he does this like he does it uh, for all of us. He saves us by grace. He heals. He exercises. He calms. We don't do. We receive. He says, go to our sin, essentially. When confronted with a storm of sin, he says, go away through the cross. And it has to obey. He's even stronger than our sin which is maybe one of the harder things to believe sometimes. You can believe that God is stronger than weather. But when it comes to some of the just deprived things that we've done in our life, we might say, maybe not quite that. Neater sins, but not the most messy. But the reality is he's stronger, that he's always in his grace, always stronger than the most wretched things that we think and do in our life. Glory to God. That's the storm he ultimately comes to face in our day. So, if we've ever felt insane with sin, like the demonized, the good news is Jesus makes us sane. We don't make us sane ourselves. That's just good news to embrace here. All we do is run to him and say, Jesus, we're perishing. Save us. Do everything. And we receive and watch him 
work his power. Another cool thing in context with the latter part is that we see that not only this, but we see the value that we have in one sense before God, at least the value of the glory of God, getting all the, the fame and glory here for the miracle, but also the value of our salvation. How much here in the latter, the latter part of the story, we see that he values our salvation much more than animals, even 2,000 pigs. We see that he values our salvation more than tons of money. It probably cost about a million dollars, all of those pigs. We don't know exactly, but can get, get, guess roughly it was about a million dollars that was sent off into the slopes to drown. So think about that for like the economy of a town like that as well, what that would have done. What's more important than all of that, even offending people here, many people at the end say, leave our region. We don't want you here. More important than all of that, he'll take all of that on himself to say, I want to save these two Gentile, far from God, demonized, not searching for me, but I'm searching for them, men. Glory to God, right? That's how much he's pursuing us. How much more important his glory in our salvation is than all those things. So value kind of rises to the top here as well in this story, if you understand some contextual things there. But again, Jesus travels to us like he crossed the sea, travels to us, to, to us, finds us, and delivers us at great cost. It's just incredible love here that we've got to see. It's very easy to picture Christ stoic and not quite even knowing what he's doing, almost in a trance. He wasn't like that. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to save people from demons, from paralysis, from sure death in the middle of the Sea of Galilee where there's absolutely no chance for survival if they would have fallen overboard. That's what he's doing. He knows this, but he's going to save people at, uh, in the demonized case anyway. Uh, we can say more precisely anyway, great cost. So that's the second thing then, the second tree. The first thing is the power over the natural realm and the, and the demonic realm. And the second thing is related because if we really get that, uh, the second thing uh, is clearer. It, and the second thing is knowing who Jesus is, according to this passage, stills our fears. Let me read verses 26 and 27 again. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And here's the key. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? So what sort of man is this? First thing they say in response. So biblically here, fear, in the disciples' case, was super closely related to not understanding who Jesus was. Fear was super closely related to really not understanding who he was. And the Bible does this all over the place. It presents a strong fear and faith dichotomy all throughout Scripture. In narrative form here, it demonstrates it. Actually says it outright too with some of the things that Jesus and the disciples say. But also in letter-based form. So like in 1 John 4.18, we get something similar. It says, there is no fear in love. Very straightforward. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishments. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So this is just saying very simply, if you understand the great love that God has for you and the way that he showed that love for you on the cross, that it can never be removed from you, we will fear much less in life, right? And if that's the greatest need we have as well. So perfect love, or understanding that love really well, will just as a byproduct of that, cast out fear in our life. We'll have fear to a degree, but we'll just care a little bit less about these lesser evils that face us, these lesser problems that we have because we have that. So First John says, and we see it demonstrated here in Matthew 8, there is no fear in love. And if you understand the love of Jesus in the story 
in a passage like this, but especially on the cross, we just will not fear. We will have the saving love, and we will not see it as insufficient. We'll see it as sufficient, it's enough to save no matter what storms we have, uh, have to face in, in life and, and are, have cause to fear of over. All right, but one last thing here I want you to see too, even with all of that said, is that notice here in the story, I love this, that Jesus' calming of the storm, when he calms the storm, it was not preceded by perfect faith in the disciples, right? It was not preceded by Jesus being impressed. Like he is elsewhere, actually, at some times in the gospel uh, narratives. He's actually impressed by faith. Like a couple weeks ago, we saw that in the centurion. He, was, he says, I've never seen faith like this in all Israel. So he was actually impressed, the Bible says, moved by it. Pretty amazing. But here, it's not preceded. Actually, it's you of little faith. Why do you fear? And so it's not, it's not preceded by anything great in the disciples, even the amount of faith. Actually, Jesus still calms the storm after that, even in light of their fear. And that's really huge. I think in the same way for us, when we come to the cross for help, it's not the amount of faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. Works don't save. Even the amount of faith doesn't save. It's kind of like in the fall. I've heard it put this way once too, and I love this. Uh, it's like in the fall or whenever, December, when the, the lakes freeze over and two people walk out on the lake. If it was my wife and I, my wife would be freaked out about the ice. She never does it. But if it was me, I'd be like, well, I've driven on lakes. I'm a Minnesota guy, so I'm not, I'm not scared. But we put, we're putting our trust in the ice, right? And it doesn't matter that Aletha has less trust in the ice. She's still on the ice with me. In the same way, we can have different degrees of trust in Jesus or feel like there's different amounts of that as long as we're trusting in Jesus alone to save us from our sins. You see? When Jesus says, if you have, a, if you have faith as, as big as a mustard seed, he's saying he's holding the smallest thing that there really is to hold up in an agrarian sense and saying, if you've got faith this big, that's enough. So if you ever hear teaching that says you're not blessed because you have enough faith or you need more faith to earn God's love, just immediately discard it on the grounds of passages like this. Oh, you have little faith? He still saves. Right? Isn't that amazing? Works don't save. Even the amount of faith, we just have to come empty-handed and cling as best as we can to the cross alone and say, this is it. What Jesus did here in dying in my place and shedding blood for me to wash me, that is, that's alone what can save me. Nothing I do, nothing I think, nothing I perform, no other gods, no other religions, no other man-made philosophy, nothing except God coming into the world to take on flesh, to walk the road to the cross, to carry it, to take on torture and shame and even separation from the Father of God itself in our place. Nothing else but that. That's it. So we have faith in that. Uh, that's what saves. But even the amount here sometimes is brought into question to just show us it's not about us. It's about God. So just rejoice in that. Some of you, I know some of you, this is the case because I talked to some of you. So I'm sure there's probably even more of you here today even that are wrestling with that. It's like, I believe, but you know, some, some, some days I kind of doubt or I feel like I need more faith in, in Jesus here before I actually cross that line. And, you know, my response to them has always been, it would be to you, if this is your question today, is look at the disciples here. Little faith in Jesus is still faith in the Son of God to save. It's still walking out onto that lake and saying, kind of freaked out here, but the ice is strong enough. So just come to the cross messy with even a little bit of messy faith and say, Jesus, you're it. And cross that line and cling to that life preserver and, and you're in. You're in the kingdom of God that way. That's, that's the nature of saved individuals 
that they just go to the cross messy, not to perform, not to clean them up, but with all of their sin, with all of their baggage, with all of, maybe even all their questions, many questions anyway, and they give that to Christ, and they're saved. So, so very, very, very cool, powerful, important story here, and, and, pr- and principle and truth uh, to see. is not just the power of Christ, not just how fear is distilled, but also how the little faith is what precedes the storm stilling, not an insanely great, super Christian amount of faith, as if there was a thing. Okay. Couple of trees there then. Let's move on to the forest. And basically what I'm going to do here is say some similar things, but from a different angle, and uh, help us see here, uh, get a forest angle on this, uh, this whole thing. So the forest is, uh, this happened to fulfill prophecy. All of this in Matthew 8, 23 to 34 happened to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. If you guys remember, uh, the pattern here in Matthew so far, and we'll see a lot more of this before the book ends, Matthew, the gospel writer, includes this. Like Jesus will say something or be born somewhere or heal somebody, and it will say right after that, and this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah or some other prophet. Just to say that this is, this is it. What, what happened back there, what was explicitly predicted or occurred back here, uh, that, that was a, basically a big arrow forward in history to this, this event right here. Just to be very clear, he's the prophecy fulfiller. He actually is the Messiah, and all these things surrounding his life are happening here to fulfill, fulfill prophecy. But also remember, we have to talk about prophecy in, in two different ways. So there's explicit prediction of Christ. So in other words, something about Jesus in the Old Testament that is fairly directly predicted like his birthplace or his tribe being the tribe of Judah, or even God is talking in terms about a suffering servant coming who's going to, to bear the transgressions and sins of the people of God and in that way usher in God's kingdom and his reign and his rule and his victory over enemies and all of that stuff. Or when God says, someone like Moses is going to come later in history and resemble him, but do much greater forms of deliverance than he did. So that's a fairly, form, a fairly direct form of uh, prophecy as, as well. But there's also an- another form of prophecy that we call uh, anticipation or implicit prediction or typological anticipation. So this typological means the study of types, things that resemble Jesus in the Old Testament. So patterns of uh, Christ, Old Testament figures or laws or festivals or stories that resemble him uh, or foreshadow him or some other New Testament reality in, in some way. So today, what I think is the second type of prophecy is in view here. So although we don't get a clear in Matthew 8, all of this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets statement right in Matthew 8, uh, we still see an event like this typified in the Old Testament to the point where I think we can say in Matthew 8, Matthew 8, 23 to 24 took place to fulfill what happened to the prophets. Anybody? We preached this in 2009 as a clue. No one? Okay, that's good. Uh, Jonah, right? Anybody? Jonah? See Jonah in this passage? Just me? Maybe I'm a little bit loopy here. Okay, well, let's keep going. We preached this back in 2009, made some of these connections from a, a forward or a backward-forward type way. Now we're doing it in reverse. So if any of you guys are unfamiliar with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, I'll give it to you like in three sentences. Uh, Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament who spoke for God and was called to preach the word of God to Gentiles. So in this case, it was Ninevites, Assyrians. And God said, go and preach, not the gospel, but basically the word of God to them as a forerunner of that. 
And he disobeyed, he rebelled, he hopped on a ship to cross the Mediterranean in the opposite direction. So God sends a storm to slow the boat while Jonah slept. The sailors woke him and say, we're going to perish. Pray to your God. Jonah, recognizing that he was at fault, says, throw me overboard and the sea will be calm. The sailors actually don't do that at first. They want to save Jonah. So they try to row out of it instead, but can't. The storm gets stronger. So they end up throwing Jonah overboard. And at that instant, when he goes overboard, the sea is calm. A great calm, it actually says. Same word here. The great calm uh, comes over the sea. It's still. Then God sends a large sea creature, a fish of some kind, to swallow him for three days and three nights. He's spit up three days later on dry land and uh, is basically given a restart on his mission. He's then sent back to Nineveh, uh, to the Assyrians, to preach the word of the Lord uh, to, to them. But again, they are, they are Gentiles here. So Gentiles means non-Jewish community. In the Old Testament, not the people of God. So it's part of his mission. It's how the book ends, actually, is, is Jonah going forth, preaching the word. The Ninevites hear it. They actually repent. They hear the word of God and believe, and there's a form of worship happening there, too. Actually, on the boat as well with the sailors before all this happens, which is really cool. So, all right. Lots of similarities here then. We're not going to do it, uh, make these connections as forthrightly or just with the same degree of time that I did a few years ago, uh, but I still want to make them. I have a chart here uh, to help us. So uh, again, we have two types of sleep happening here, actually basically identical with Jonah and Jesus. Second line, the sailors cry out for help that they might not perish. Same word is used. The disciples cry out for help here too, that they might not perish. Uh, In Jonah's story, his death, which he doesn't quite die, but he effectively does, uh, stills the seas in the, in the story of Jonah. And of course, in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus rebukes the seas and they are stilled. Sailors saved, disciples saved, three days and nights in the fish versus uh, three days and three nights in the tomb. And then Jonah preaches to the Gentiles, whereas in Matthew 8 and beyond, uh, these last two are actually beyond Matthew 8. We'll come to that here in a second. But Jesus visits Gentiles and delivers two from demons. As we go beyond that, of course, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth uh, after that. So, Lots of similarities then, if you guys see this. Not a one-to-one, but that's actually okay to have that. We have to allow the shadows to be okay, or to be shadows, and to predict these realities of Christ in an imperfect but still intentional manner. And that's okay to have that. I actually read a, a Christian review of uh, Man of Steel. You guys seen Man of Steel yet? I didn't see it, but you guys know kind of Superman maybe uh, goes. But anyway, um, the review was all right, but you know, he was, a lot of Christians are making these ties to, to Christ and Superman and how the, these things parallel. And I think there's a lot of parallels there, actually. But, you know, this guy was saying, we shouldn't be too quick to do that. And there's actually a lot of differences with Superman and Christ. And I was reading this, I'm thinking, well, of course there's differences, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Jesus had the S or anything or a cape or, you know, wasn't a different planet. He didn't fly. I mean, yeah, you could go on and say, of course there's differences, right? But that's the point. It's like with Moses and Jesus or Jonah and Jesus. You know, Jonah is obviously connected with Christ here. But he wasn't Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't actually spend time in the Galilean region. Galilee didn't exist then, right? I mean, all these differences you could have. But when the Bible makes the connections, it's shadow, imperfect thing that kind of resembles Jesus to Jesus, not Jesus to Jesus. So just to be clear. So let me just, this is a huge sidebar, by the way, but just be encouraged to see Jesus and everything under the sun. Everything exists to be drawn up into the head, which is Christ, Ephesians 1.10 says. And it's okay to do that just to see resemblances in song and literature and our experiences and storms and all these things with uh, Christ and season change and marriage and parenting and he's in everything. Everything's about him just like all of scripture is ultimately about him. That's where it gets its full meaning. Okay, but not just this. This is the key here where Matthew 8 starts to fall short. Uh, It's not just seeing these connections, but actually 
these things start to resemble his work for us on the cross as well, which we're not at yet in Matthew 8, but important to get that. This is why actually Jesus says later in Matthew 12, 38 to 41, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then later, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. James Bruckner, in his commentary on Jonah, makes this observation. Uh, the, the stained glass of the cathedral in Cologne, Germany, depicts Jonah emerging from the mouth of the fish or serpent with a sign of blessing, mirrored by Jesus, who does the same, but emerging from, from the tomb. So, one of the more clear connections the Bible actually makes with an Old Testament character in Jesus, there's actually a lot more connections with a variety of characters that are more implicit. This is one of the more explicit ones, so... Not like we're grabbing at straws either, either. Bible does this itself. So how much more to bend the knee and see this, see this depiction. So, all right. So with all that said then, going back to Matthew 8, what we're really seeing here from a forest perspective, so not so much a tree perspective, but a forest perspective, is we're seeing a Jonah-like prophet calming seas, healing people, and ultimately bringing deliverance to Gentiles. Just like Jesus does right in context here. But the catch again is, super important, the catch is the cross and the empty tomb are even here in Matthew 8 still anticipated. So this is the progression. The story of Jonah, especially chapters 1 and 4, to Matthew 8, but then still ahead to the cross and the empty tomb. So that Matthew 8 is a bit of a mid-level fulfillment of what began back in Jonah, but not the ultimate fulfillment. So if you want to see that in chart form, I have one more chart, kind of chart happy today. Jonah on the left, kind of simplified, but also uh, elaborated a bit with a third column. So on the Jonah side, we have, and, and the Matthew 8 side, we have the seas being stilled, but it's really at the cross and the empty tomb where the seas of our, or the, the, the seas and the winds, the storms of our sin-wracked souls are, are stilled with, uh, with his death. And then we have, uh, in Jonah and Matthew 8, we have a resurrection a bit happening, especially in Jonah. But in, at the cross and the empty tomb, we have the three days and three nights there. Then the ultimate resurrection where death itself is defeated. We have that type of good news. And then very clearly on the bottom, we have preaching the word of God to the Gentiles, which Jonah and Matthew 8 depict. But it's really after the empty tomb that the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem to all of us the ultimate Assyrians, the ultimate Ninevites, the ultimate far-from-God ones, but the ones that God travels to. He sends Jonah as a representative, as one who knows the word, as the one as a bearer of good news to the far-from-God ones. So God traveling to people by grace to save is a big thing that we learn about him in the scriptures, all the scriptures, in Jonah, in Matthew 8, especially at the cross, because it's at the cross where God travels to us. He did it at the incarnation as well, right? Which is a fancy word for when God took on flesh, became a human being. He traveled a great distance, you could say, from heaven, from the comforts of heaven and condescended himself and came a great distance and saved us, delivered us. See, we're seeing Matthew 8 is this middle fulfillment. It's depicting these things that have began earlier in the story, in the Old Testament, in fact, but they're not the ultimate ones. There's only two guys delivered here in Matthew 8. There's only 12 disciples delivered in the boat in Matthew 8. But in the third column there, without the third column, by the way, too, none of the first two columns mean anything. They really don't. 
They're just a shadow of the third column. If you take the reality of the yellow column away, the first two just disappear. They, they really mean nothing. They don't mean anything, really, aside from the cross. The ultimate meaning we get, like Martin Luther said about uh, the, the Old Testament, actually all the scriptures, if you read a passage wherever you are in the Bible, Leviticus, Jonah, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Revelation, Matthew, and you don't get to Jesus and the cross, you have, some not, you have somehow not encountered the Word of God. You haven't really gotten at it. You haven't gotten at true meaning with the passages. And so we have to do the hard work with stuff like this to understand the, the narrative, understand what everything is about him, or we actually don't get it proper God-intended meaning for his word. He just tirelessly wants us to know about him, but not in a vague sense, in a very, very specific sense. The cross, the resurrection, the bearing of sin, the stilling of the, the chaos inside of our hearts. That's what, that's what he wants. So to summarize this and to make a few final exhortations in conclusion, lots going on here. Again, the trees of the story tell us that Jesus is all-powerful. No realm of creation has power over him. He commands all and all must obey. Therefore, don't fear. Trust him and fears in life will dispel whatever they are. And also understand that Jesus does everything here to save what we're clearly seeing over and over and over and over again in these narratives is that people just receive, they don't do. Like the paralytic, like the disciples, like the demonized, we'll see it over and over. Repetition is a literary device used by God to teach something, to pound it into our minds. If we missed it here, we'll get it later in Matthew 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 or at the cross especially, how he does it all. And all we are called to do is watch him work his power, especially on the cross to save. It's the same there as well. Our good deeds do not save. The good deed of Christ, the ultimate act of obedience on the cross is all, all that does. So, so in these stories then, see your Savior. God wants us to see that in here. It's not just a story that's wrapped up 2,000 years ago and can't be pulled from that in, into our lives. This is time transcending, culture transcending stuff. This is what he is for you today if you believe. Some of you don't yet. Some of you are beginning to believe in this and bending the knee to this and not yourself anymore or not your good deeds anymore. Uh, a lot of you are, are in that process. Some of you have crossed that line and are being reminded. But this is our save. This is what he's done for all of us here. He has said, go to our sin. He's rebuked it on the cross and it's dissipated instantly and we've received that when, we, when we've trusted in him. So amazing. So that's some of those trees there. Again, the forest says the same kind of things but in a different manner. That a new Jonah is here, but in, in a greater way. And with his death, he's going to still the, sorts, the storms of our sin-wracked souls and heal us and pull evil out of our bodies and to, in this way, bring good news, again, like Jonah to the Ninevites, bring good news to us with our fear-driven, sin-entangled lives. So I think what we see here then as we span the Testaments today is a God who all over the place, and this is two of the many instances, actually three of the many, include the cross, God is a God who calms chaos. He just is. At creation as well, I could lump in creation when he does it there, but all throughout the scriptures, he calms chaos. But here's the key. We have to understand the foremost storm in our lives is not in Matthew 8. It's not last Friday night. If you had a tree fall in your house or the worst of storms, that's not the biggest problem you have. It's not the biggest storm. The biggest storm in our life is inside of us. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Before all these physical storms in the Bible, Adam and Eve slap God in the face and rebel and walk away or cast out of the garden. That's the problem that needs remedying. That's the ultimate storm spiritually and that brings all the physical storms that we ever face in this world into being. That's the storm that God goes to the heart of and fixes and remedies with, with his death. I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said, or when he was asked, what's wrong with the world? He responded, I am. Which I love that. You know, that, that, is, that is a distinctly Christian way to think. No other worldview or religion propagates that type of stuff in people's minds. But if we get sin and we see the cross, there's no other response. What's the greatest problem in the world? If you don't immediately think I am, and we rarely don't, or rarely do, right? We've got to go back to the scriptures and say, what does the Bible teach? Oh, yeah. My biggest problem is in, it's not out there somewhere. There are problems out there somewhere, but the biggest problem is right here. What I need is a Jesus to take, take this out of me and lay it on himself on the cross and become a thief, become a robber, become separated from God on my behalf, become a, basically become sin, the Bible says, so that in him, I might, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened on the cross. Substitution happened. So that's the great storm that needs the calming. And so when you, whenever you see peace talked about as well then, in reference to salvation in the Bible, biblically, think of sea stilling. Think of things like Matthew 8. Think of Isaiah 53, 5. And I'll end with this. One of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Christ, one of the more direct ones. Talked about that before. Isaiah 53, 5 says, Speaking of the Christ 700 years before he walked the earth, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Laid on him was all of our sin, our transgression. Chastisement was brought upon him that we might have peace. And peace is synonymous with storm stilling, right? The storm on Friday ended. Glory to God. If we want that type of feeling we got when the rain stopped, like, thank God it's over. If you want that in your soul forever, but on a heightened level, like your sin is gone, chaos in your life is gone, shame over sin is gone, come to the cross. He'll raise his hand and lovingly rebuke it in your place and take it all from you. That's what this is all about. It's about him. So, Let's respond that way. Not do, but respond. And if we're going to do anything, actively believe. And actively believe it's sufficient. The way, again, we cheapen this is by going home and adding to it. And saying, I'm going to be a good person now because he's done this for me. Be a mess and come to Jesus and find washing, find stilling, find deliverance, and find healing. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, today. Thanks for the gospel of Christ in Matthew 8. Thank you that it's clear you do everything in this passage. You are Savior to the uttermost. Not an example to follow, not a guru, not a guy with good advice, but someone with really, really, really good news and who embodies that on the cross with disciples behind him crying out for their lives, doing nothing. You rebuke the storm. We thank you that you've done that on a much higher level on the cross. You're the new Jonah who, with his death, has, stormed, has stilled the storms of our life and so we praise you for that, God. I pray that people who don't believe that yet or who kind of believe that but are still believing that it's still 30% my good life that saves me, I pray today it would be 100% you and 0% them. That they would just humbly bend the knee to you and believe that, that only those who come to the cross empty-handed are, are let in, uh, God. So pray, God, that we would have faith in you. Even a little amount of faith in the right manner, with the right object is sufficient. So. 
Thank you for that even as well. Not even the amount of faith. It's faith, but man, such freeing, restful good news for us today to just be reminded of, maybe for the first time here. Uh, But build your church today. Build up us upon the foundation of that good news today as we respond. And uh, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.